anyway, the reason that this is so dangerous, as we learned in the example of Amazon's recruiting tool, is algorithmic bias can lead to discriminatory practices. For example, police are starting to use facial recognition technology in their surveillance arsenal. And while it's funny if Facebook misidentifies someone in a photo, misidentifying someone as a criminal is no laughing matter. Welcome back to the DFN Podcast. I'm your host, Ali. Today, I'm joined by my friend, Jade Greer, the Director of Strategic Initiatives here at DFN. Say hi, Jade. Hi, everyone. In this episode, Jade and I are going to be talking about data fails. We have six data fails for you, the consequences of which range from annoying to fatal. These fails are relatable, they're infuriating, and at times they are hilarious. Reoccurring themes include data gaps, algorithmic bias, and systemic racism. If those words sound big and scary, I can assure you that Jade and I will break things down to the basics. Let's dive right into it. I'll introduce our first data fail with a not-so-fun fact. 10,000 women die in car crashes each year because of bad design. And what makes this fact even more infuriating is that although men are statistically more likely to cause crashes, women are 72% more likely to be injured and 17% more likely to die in them. Okay, so how does that happen? Well, there are a few reasons. First, every car that receives a safety rating from the National Highway Safety Transportation Association, which is just the safety rating agency in the United States, undergoes a series of tests. I believe it's four tests. But there is no mandated test that simulates a female driver. So they don't use female car crash test dummies? Well, car manufacturers aren't required to by law, which means they have no incentive to safely design vehicles for women, or they just have no incentive to do so. But having said that, there are mandated tests with women in the passenger seat, But the problem with these tests is the crash test dummies used to represent women are essentially just scaled down men. So they're four foot 11, 108 pounds with just complete disregard for varying bone densities, muscle structures, boobs, really, really important things that differentiate men from women. And so the automobile industry is a fatal example of a huge data fail. By not mandating tests with female drivers, we're failing to collect data. And by using crash test dummies that are not an accurate representation of the average female body, we're collecting inaccurate data. And this is just one example of how women are often erased from critical design decisions that lead to data fails. I think I recognize this example. Is this from Invisible Women with Caroline Criado Perez? Yes, Jade, it is. And I'm glad you brought that up because for those of you who haven't heard of the book, it highlights a ton of what we call gender data gaps and dives into quite a few products from smartphones to stoves that were developed without women in mind. It's a great read. We're actually reading it in the DFN book club right now. Our virtual meetings will be held at the end of February and March 2022. And we'll throw the registration to that in the show notes as well. 
One of my favorite books that we've ever done for a book club was Weapons of Math Destruction by Kathy O'Neill. And one example that stood out to me the most was um, a police surveillance algorithm. And it's around the criminal justice system in the US, which is something that we all know is incredibly racist. But what some of us might not know is that algorithms are actually worsening the problem and further embedding racism into these systems that are managing our lives. Um, so the PredPool model is a predictive crime model that's designed to help target and track criminal acts. And the goal of the model is to optimize the development of police personnel by helping them identify and prioritize where crime is most likely to occur. And the locations come to be considered as high risk zones. Do you wanna take a guess at which kind of neighborhoods tend to be marked as high risk? Okay, so high risk zones, meaning what is perceived to be high crime areas. I would guess low income neighborhoods and neighborhoods that are home to a higher percentage of marginalized communities. Exactly. Impoverished neighborhoods um, are more likely to be neighborhoods of minoritized races. So the problem with the PredPol model is that nuisance crimes like underage drinking or marijuana possession that would otherwise go unpunished if not noticed by cops are documented and then end up populating the PredPol model, leading to even higher surveillance in these areas. And higher surveillance means more and more nuisance crimes will be reported, making it seem as though these neighborhoods are more crime-ridden and therefore more dangerous. Okay, so let me get this straight from like the statistical modeling side. So the PredPol model tells police where to deploy its personnel based on historic crime rates. Police go to these high-risk zones, and because they're there, they happen to catch more petty crimes, or what you called nuisance crimes. And so this data is then put back into the statistical model, which sends more police there who catch more nuisance crimes, essentially inflating crime rates, even though these types of crimes kind of happen everywhere, right? Exactly. So it's what O'Neill calls like a destructive feedback loop. So as more and more data is feeding into the algorithm, it just amplifies the problem even more. And as you pointed out, the nuisance crimes are happening everywhere, but these are the neighborhoods that are being punished only because they're being caught. So a frat village or a private suburb is doing the same stuff, if not more, but they're not getting caught since they're, you know, a wealthier or a primarily white area. So those areas are going unpunished while people in impoverished neighborhoods are serving time and can be impoverished for life because of their criminal record. And as we pointed out, impoverished neighborhoods in America are disproportionately populated by Black and Hispanic people. So even if the model is supposed to be objective and colorblind, the results aren't. So in other words, in America, cities are extremely segregated, and this makes geography a proxy for race. And the more the model amplifies crime rates in impoverished neighborhoods, the more impoverished people of color are criminalized and the harder it is for these people to find jobs, which makes it nearly impossible to escape poverty. So it's really not a justice system. It's a system that's reflecting our biases towards race and poverty. In addition to the criminal justice system, racial biases are also seeping into the technologies that decide who gets hired. The next data fail I'm going to talk about is a sexist recruiting tool that was developed by one of the world's largest tech companies. This company is huge. I would bet it's a common household name for 98% of North Americans. Jade, any ideas which company I'm talking about? 
It's either Google or Amazon. The company is Amazon. As we all know, Amazon is one of the largest companies, and as a result, they deal with an overwhelming amount of job applications each year. In 2014, the company was trying to find an efficient and effective way to review these applications. What they decided to do is they created an algorithm to do a first-pass filter of applicants based on the resumes of existing employees, which sounds like a relatively good idea, right? I'd say so. I, I think that's pretty standard. Yeah, for sure. It's totally standard these days. I think you even expect your resume to get viewed by a robot before it sees human eyes. But Amazon had to almost immediately scrap the idea because... To their credit, they did discover that the system wasn't rating candidates in a gender-neutral way. So the algorithm was sexist. Yeah, pretty much. How the system worked is it did a kind of regression analysis to figure out what factors are correlated to resumes that should be immediately dismissed. And what they found was that if an applicant attended a woman's college, they were put into the definitely do not interview pile simply because so many of Amazon's employees that were already working there didn't go to women's colleges. Jade, any ideas why they didn't go to women's colleges? Probably because they were men. Yes, exactly, because they were men. So this is an example of what we call algorithmic bias. Like human bias, algorithmic bias refers to creating exclusionary experiences and discriminatory practices that result in unfairness. But algorithms like viruses can spread bias on a massive scale and very quickly. As frightening as it is to hear, research shows that algorithms aren't just reflecting our biases, but they're amplifying them. And this example of Amazon's inadvertently sexist recruiting tool is a perfect example of that. Another really common hiring and promotional practice is meritocracy. Could you, in simple terms, explain what exactly meritocracy is? It's a system where the highest positions and rankings or hiring are based on merit, talent, or achievement, and not necessarily on race, wealth, or social class. It's it's thought to be fair and unbiased and to justify who is at the top upon them being the best. So again, it doesn't have anything to do with race, but has all to do with skill and merit. Okay. I mean, that sounds pretty fair. In theory, it might be, but what we're not questioning is these qualifications for success and what they're actually based off of. So similar to the Amazon example, if merit is measured on white male standards, How are minoritized people supposed to meet them and reach the top? Okay, I guess they aren't. Exactly. The system is designed so that they won't. And um, Caroline Criado Perez, the author of Invisible Women, she calls meritocracy an insidious myth that provides cover to institutional white male bias. One example she provides is an analysis of 14 million reviews on the website ratemyprofessors.com, which I'm sure um, all university students will be familiar with this website. Um, The study found that female professors are more likely to be mean, unfair, strict, and annoying. But male professors are more likely to be described as brilliant, 
intelligent, smart, and a genius. This is something that uh, Criado Perez calls brilliance bias, and this is the tendency to associate brilliance as a male trait. If a high position requires brilliance, women are far less likely to apply or will be disproportionately criticized like female professors. A study on language in a job posting revealed drastic differences in rates of women applicants based on the types of words that were used. So the job posting that had an emphasis on aggressiveness and competitiveness brought in only 5% um, female applicants where a job posting that had an emphasis on enthusiasm and innovation brought the number of female applicants up to 40%. I once in class heard somebody ask how we can increase diversity without sacrificing meritocracy. And I was absolutely baffled when I read this. Um, whether the person knew it or not, they were pretty much saying, how can we ensure that those at the top are there because they deserve it on the basis of merit, stay there. And increasing diversity would somehow be compromising the brilliance and it would make everybody less strong. I think the thing with meritocracy and the reason why this person said that statement is they and we all have to wrap our head around the fact that we didn't all start from equal starting lines. It's that concept of inequity and we don't all start from the same place. So I guess that's kind of linked to meritocracy as well. Yeah, 100%. Okay, I think I get it. But how does this pertain to data fails? I'd say the data fail of meritocracy is that it's leaking into algorithms and it's determining who's going to apply and who's going to succeed. So I think actually the Amazon example is an example of meritocracy. They assumed who they already had was the best. So they were measuring their new candidates on those sort of standards of brilliance and excellence that they identified in their majority white male um, employed, employees. And so we really need to question and change our white male bias standards of brilliance and merit, and that will allow more people to reach the top. So for those of you who don't know, Jay studied English literature and gender, race, sexuality, and social justice during her undergrad. Meanwhile, I'm coming from like a business and data background. So Jade is always teaching me these new words and new concepts that are totally new to me. Well, Ali, the feeling is mutual. I had no idea how big of a problem data and algorithms were. They were something I completely overlooked, especially, you know, reading novels and literature all the time. I never thought that was something I needed to look into, but now I realize the problem is everywhere. Yeah, and it's scary because technology and data is so deeply embedded into so many aspects of our lives. For example, we're all familiar with facial recognition technology. You know, we unlock our iPhones with a glance and wonder how Facebook knew to tag us in photos. And we all know that like any technology, facial recognition technology doesn't work perfectly. Okay, I've found that at least half of the time that I'm trying to unlock my phone, it doesn't recognize me or it takes at least three tries. And for some reason, first thing in the morning when I unlock my phone, it never recognizes my face. And I don't know if it's because I'm not wearing makeup or because my eyes are puffy, but it's so frustrating. That's really funny. And it's funny you mention it because my partner has a younger brother. He's two years younger than him. And they look 
like somewhat similar. Sometimes they get asked if they're twins when they go to eat at restaurants, but they still, I mean, they're two years apart. They, they're not twins, but the brother can sometimes open his phone with his face. I'm going to have to try that out with my twin brother sometime and see if it works. <laughs> I hope it does. That would be hilarious. <laughs> okay. So on the topic of facial recognition technology, there's this really awesome African-American computer scientist and poet named Dr. Joy Blumwini, who experienced the bias of facial recognition firsthand and now uses art and research to illuminate the social implications of artificial intelligence. You may have heard of her organization called Algorithmic Justice League. Uh, she's also the star of a really great Netflix film called Coded Bias. Anyway, when she was an undergraduate student, she discovered facial recognition programs would work well on her white friends, but wouldn't recognize her face at all. She figured it was a flaw that would surely be fixed before long. However, a few years later, after joining the MIT Media Lab, she ran into the same problem again. And the crazy thing is, only when she put on a white mask and one of those creepy Jabberwocky masks, like they don't look human at all, only then did the software recognize her face. So I did a little research and found that facial recognition algorithms boast high classification accuracy, like over 90%, but these outcomes are not universal. A growing body of research exposes divergent error rates across demographic groups with the poorest accuracy consistently found in Black females between the ages of 18 to 30 years old, which fits Joy Bulamwini's description perfectly at the time. And even top performing facial recognition systems misidentify Black faces at five to 10 times higher than they do white faces. But why are Black females so much less likely to be recognized? Well, the problem stems from the fact that algorithms are only as good as the data upon which they are trained. How this works is you create a training set with examples of faces, and you categorize images or parts of images as either a face or not a face. Over time, you can teach a computer to recognize faces. But the catch is... If the training sets aren't really that diverse, any face that deviates too much from the norm will be more difficult to detect. Now, the good news is these training sets don't just appear out of nowhere. We as data scientists create them. And so there's an opportunity here to create full spectrum training sets that reflect a richer and you know, more diverse and quite frankly, more accurate portrait of humanity. But the catch is we, as data scientists, have to be aware of these biases in order to address them. That's where the importance of representation comes in. Exactly. And that's where the importance of what we do here at DFN comes in, just raising awareness of these issues. Because not only do data scientists need to know these things, but like everyone who works with data, which is most people these days, and it's not something that's talked about very often. Anyway, the reason that this is so dangerous, as we learned in the example of Amazon's recruiting tool, is algorithmic bias can lead to discriminatory practices. For example, police are starting to use facial recognition technology in their surveillance arsenal. And while it's funny if Facebook misidentifies someone in a photo, 
misidentifying someone as a criminal is no laughing matter. If you want to learn more about this particular data fail and what is being done to mitigate and fight the social implications of artificial intelligence, I would highly recommend checking out Algorithmic Justice League or Dr. Joy Bloomweenie's work in this area. And watch Coded Bias on Netflix. Yes, definitely do that too. Virginia Eubanks, the author of one of my favorite books, Automating Inequality, which we read in our book club, is featured in that film. Oh my gosh. Yes, I love that book. Yes, a great book and a great transition into our next data fail. So in the book, Automating Inequality, Virginia Eubanks explores the coded bias in a child welfare risk model in Allegheny County, Pennsylvania. The system scores through a database of 29 different public programs, including law enforcement, public schools, and public housing records. It then puts a numerical value on the likelihood that a child is being abused or neglected. Okay, so that sounds like a pretty good idea to me, using technology to make sure children are safe and healthy, right? In theory, yes, but there are two major problems with the model. The first is that it only has access to the data it has access to. The model is built on data about access to public programs. So so if you're receiving mental health services through private insurance or you access financial help through your family, you're not in the system. It's important to note that wealthy middle-class people in America are disproportionately made up of white people. So Eubanks argues that only collecting data on those who access public resources is a form of poverty profiling where poor parents are drawn into a feedback loop of very invasive surveillance. Impoverished people often don't have a choice. They have to use public resources to care for their children, which kind of defeats the purpose of the child risk welfare system if they want people to use public resources for the safety of their children. So the model ends up being used against them in determining whether they're fit parents. And the second major issue is that it uses proxies to stand in for actual child maltreatment. This means that there's not enough data to actually produce a viable model. So for example, in Allegheny County, black and biracial families are three and a half times more likely to be called on either by mandatory reporters or anonymous callers. And this is leaking racial injustice into the system and into the algorithm. So again, just like the criminal justice system, people are punished for being poor and or minoritized. Okay, I think I'm starting to get it. And I'm noticing a reoccurring theme in this episode. Not only are minoritized communities often left out of important data, resulting in data gaps and therefore data fails, but they're also surveyed way more than wealthy, well-off, higher-income people, which is just, I mean, they're getting the worst of both worlds. Yes, definitely. They're the ones who are the most negatively impacted by the algorithms. Okay, yeah, that totally makes sense. And that's a common theme throughout all the books we've read and something we talk about a lot in our book clubs. Well, Jade, thank you so much for sitting down with me and talking about data fails. For those of you who haven't read Invisible Women, who have been meaning to, who have never heard of it before, if you enjoyed this podcast, you are really going to enjoy that book. It's essentially 400 pages of data fails, Automating Inequality, Weapons of Math Destruction. Those are also great books. Coded Bias. Uh, I would check all those out. We also have a list of recommended books on our website. Well, thank you, Allie. It was so fun talking to you. And Everybody listening, I hope to see you at the book club at the end of February. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, you're going to love our Invisible Women book club series. To learn more, click the registration link in the show notes. To stay up to date on DFN events, check out our website at www.datafeminismnetwork.org. If you're a fan of the show, follow us on Instagram at Data Feminism Network and on Twitter at Data Fem Network. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, where we post event updates and share job opportunities related to data equity and inclusion. Be sure to tune in to next week's episode on Data for Inclusion with Silvana Fumega.